25 seconds left to play. You're listening to the Matt Wyatt Show. I want winners. This crowd is alive. Play to win the game. Wyatt from the shotgun, two backs alongside. Knock him out, John. Wyatt gets the ball. It won't be long. Wyatt back to throw. Wyatt looks. Fires toward the end zone. Passes. Caught for touchdown by Matthew Butler. Speak to. They are who we thought they were. And we let them out the hook. I get out of hand. Just, just tell me I'm a jerk and shut up. Let's go scatter the West right tight. That's left. 372 Y The Matt Wyatt Show. He's Radio Wyatt. Well, how am I going to go to college? I'll just play football. All right, welcome into the show. How y'all are? I'm Matt. I'm Matt in the Farm Bureau studio. Farm Bureau, go with the home team. They are your home team at Mississippi Farm Bureau Insurance across the great state of Mississippi. Hometown heroes in all 82 counties across Mississippi. Staying connected to you because of C Spire, the number one network in Mississippi. Hope you had a great weekend. Off and running, here we go, hour one. Got a lot uh, headed your way. I'm sure you, if you're a sports fan like everybody else, you're buzzing. You're buzzing a little bit about this uh, Last Dance documentary, Michael Jordan and the Bulls. Yeah, you remember that? Adgard from North Carolina. (laughs) What'd y'all think about it? Uh, I didn't watch it. I have yet to see it. Everybody last night watched this two-part. It's ten parts. Last night they showed the first two parts, the documentary. Um, The whole world saw it, apparently. I didn't see it. I didn't get a chance to, but I am going to go back today on either ESPN or Netflix and watch it. I just didn't get around to it. I was doing other things last night. But I will say this, okay? 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old Matt Wyatt doesn't need a documentary to remind him of the greatness of Michael Jordan or to prove to him what Michael Jordan is, the greatest of all time. I don't need that because I lived it. There was not a bigger Michael Jordan fan on on earth during that time. And I saw it with my own eyes, and I've been preaching that sermon. Anytime anybody would try to argue (laughs) or say otherwise, or anytime somebody would sit still long enough to listen. Been saying it for years. And people pointed at me, and all you LeBron fans, and all you millennials pointed at me and called me and texted me on the radio for the last 10 years, talking about I'm old and I, I'm i I'm now becoming the get-off-my-lawn guy. And Matt, yeah, you, just, you just got some kind of issue. You don't have an appreciation for how good the NBA is now compared to back. Bull. It was bull then. And it's bull now. And I realize there's a pun in there. But the point is, it was better then for a million different reasons. But reason number one is because the greatest player to ever put on Nikes, sneakers, Michael Jordan was playing then, surrounded by a league full of transcendent stars. Who? Many of them played for one team for their entire career. Bird. Magic. Isaiah. 
Dominique, Akeem the Dream. Well, Barkley played for different teams, but he's in there. I mean, it just the list goes on and on. Patrick Ewing and the Knicks. You know, I mean, it was inc- it was compelling. You had pride in those cities, in those markets, and the, the competitiveness was incredible. The games were physical. It was real physical, tough, offensive, defensive basketball in the NBA back then. And now it stinks, and it has stunk for a long time. And now everybody's watching this documentary because they got nothing else to watch, and everybody's seeing it. And those that don't believe it are seeing it and being reminded of it. It was better then. It was more competitive then. And the number one reason is because the greatest player ever even get close to a rim. Michael Jordan played then. And it ain't close. All that stuff I said is not close. Bring it on today. And let's talk about it. Feel free to text me on the Country Please and text line. Country Please and Sausage on grocery store shelves throughout the Southeast. They are the best. I had, let's see, I ate for breakfast this morning. The flavor that I had was, um, I'm almost out of breath from that rant a while ago. Isn't that terrible? Uh, the flavor I had this morning was uh, the jalapeno and cheddar. It makes my old bald head sweat when I eat it, but it's so good I just keep on eating it. Amy, watching on Periscope or Twitter, says, Amen, preach it, Matt. Had a picture of Michael Jordan on my refrigerator for 15 years. He was the original Goat, the original, and he's still on top of the mountain. It ain't close. LeBron, LeBron, LeBron. It's not close. And I didn't have to see a documentary to believe that. Anybody that's been listening to me on the radio for 10 years knows. I've been preaching that sermon. So glad they did it. Others are seeing it. And you cannot argue it anymore. Thank you very much. But. I would like to begin today by talking to somebody who did see the documentary, shall we? Let's do that. Let's bring him in right now with his own his own entrance. And play-by-play announcer. <laughs> From a little town in East Tennessee. <laughs> Number one in your heart. Neil Price, Hail State Voice on Twitter. Neil, got your own intro today, man. Yeah, can we find a way to just make that happen every time I appear on your show? That'd be wonderful. <laughs> you got it. As a matter of that's fact, the, that's the most excited. That's the most excited <laughs> I've been in a month. <laughs> we hadn't had much to be excited about, uh, Neil. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> And if I could have remembered your hometown, I would have said that. And that's why I said a little town in East Tennessee. I hope that was okay. Yeah, Morristown. We're about 35,000. That, that, that qualifies still as small. Yeah. Yeah. And about like Tupelo. <laughs> about like Tupelo. That's right. That's right. All right. Neil is on your radio. I just wanted to talk to you, Neil. I was thinking, you know, maybe even as a radio host, I'm in an advantageous position today in that I'm about the only person in the world who didn't sit down and watch the the beginning of the documentary last night. So all of my questions for you are going to be of the genuine variety. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, and and we'll probably spoil some things for some people who haven't seen it. So, you know, by all means, we want you to keep listening. But <laughs> if you don't want to know what happened last night, cover your ears at, at certain times here, you know. There you um, go. Earmuffs. But I'll tell you, what, what I saw of it, you know, they showed the first two parts last night of 10, I think is what it's going to be. And, uh, man, it's really well done. Uh, the, the, the fact that the folks from the NBA, uh, had, had the, the foresight in the late nineties to follow that team around with cameras, uh, starting back when, when they went to France and played an exhibition early on all the way through that year. That, that was just really, really smart on their part to preserve that for posterity because that team is arguably the greatest team that ever played in the NBA. I mean, just I remember watching that as as a high school senior, and it was unbelievable how they overcame a slow start and put together the run that they did. I don't know that anybody, any team, will will will, will match where those guys were. I mean, they were just unbelievable. Yeah, they were. All right, so the first two parts of this documentary, Last Dance, what'd you think of it? Well, I thought, you know, I thought that the, the filmmakers did a really good job of, of breaking down all of the different storylines that were at work going into this final year. And I'll admit, I don't think I understood all the different things that were going on behind the scenes because my exposure to that team was when you saw them on WGN during the regular season and when you'd see them on NBC obviously on the weekends or, you know, in the playoff. And we just knew that they had a really, really talented collection of players and they were led by the greatest player of all time, Michael Jordan. What I didn't understand as, you know, a high schooler and still didn't totally understand until I watched it last night is that you've got this dynamic where you've got a guy like Scottie Pippen whose story is is really fascinating in its own right from how he became, you know, uh, how, he, how he became an NBA player from what he came from. But then he was criminally underpaid when, when you look at him being not only the second best player on the best team in the NBA, but maybe the second best player at that time uh, or by the end of his career, certainly with or end of his career with the Bulls, certainly um, the second best player, maybe in the NBA. And he, he was, wasn't was in the top 120 players in the league with regard to what he was being paid at that point. Uh, that was fascinating to me, uh, the dynamic between the star players on that team and Jerry Krause, the general manager. Um, you know, there was a lot of adversarial stuff there. Uh, and, and obviously, this is the guy who wants to blow the team up after they've won you know, all of these championships, it, it was really, it's really fascinating. And they do a great job, I think, of laying all of it out, giving you the historical context of how Jordan became this great player, Scottie Pippen last night, and how he became this great player in the NBA. And then all the role players around those, I saw Joe Klein last night, and I forgot Joe Klein even played for the Chicago Bulls. I mean, I had just forgotten that he didn't play a lot, but that's a name I just had, I had thought about since the late 90s. Uh, Bill Winnington, who was a uh, backup center on those teams. You know, I mean, they did a great job of, of really illustrating how all this stuff developed over time. 
And it's just a really great piece of storytelling, I think. Yeah. I want to play this clip that is from the documentary. Uh, it's the voice of Scottie Pippen. And then you hear Michael Jordan. It's a portion of this a little dialogue that's in this documentary. I, I want to listen to this. And then, Neil, you saw the whole thing and kind of helped frame it in my mind. Okay. So here's the clip. Okay. I was at that point where I felt like I needed to do what was best for me. I feel like it was time for me to go shopping. Pippen is now demanding a trade, and he says he will not return from the injured list until he is gone from Chicago. He said he's never going to play for the Bulls ever again. I'm never going to wear this uniform ever again. Can the Bulls do something that would make you want to stay? Nah, no. I don't see myself carrying on. Uh, Scotty made some earth-shattering comments last night to one of the Chicago writers about wanting to be traded. Can we get your thoughts on that? I don't really have any right now. I felt like Scotty was being selfish, you know, worrying about himself as opposed to what his word was to the organization as well as to the team. I'm done here, you know what I'm saying? You've already written my script out that this is it. So I had to do what was best for me. All right, so that clip, Neil, one thing stands out to me, and that is... Michael Jordan saying that he felt Scottie Pippen was being selfish by saying, I'm done in Chicago, I want out, because he, I guess, had signed a – am I right? He had signed a long-term deal or something like that? He signed, I think, Matt, it was a seven-year contract. Okay. And that seven-year contract was for far less probably than what the fair market value would have been. And Jerry Reinsdorf – says as much in in the documentary that if he would if Scottie Pippen would have come to him he would have said to him he wouldn't have signed the deal just because he thought he had undervalued himself mm -hmm. now what Scottie Pippen also says in the documentary is he signed that long-term contract because he wanted to provide for his family and wanted security in knowing that if he were to be injured at some point in the prime of his career, he had guaranteed money. So he had security financially. And, you know, as somebody who's never dealt in the kind of numbers that these guys are dealing in with regard to what they're being paid, I can understand where he's coming from from that financial security standpoint. This is a guy from Arkansas who came up with very humble origin. He was a manager on a D2 NAIA team and worked his way into a scholarship and then became the number five pick in the NBA draft. Okay. So, I mean, he, he worked for everything he got. And, you know, so I see that part of it. Michael Jordan, as the documentary portrays him, and I believe this to be accurate, knowing nothing about the man. Um, he was all about winning first and foremost. The money was a byproduct of that, but he was all about winning and winning championships. So where, where Jordan, I think, took issue with this is that he wants to win, and Scottie Pippen's a big piece of the puzzle here in, in the early stages of 97 and 98 that's missing because he's got the foot injury. He could have had that foot injury, the surgery for it, immediately following the previous season but chose not to. And there's another line in there, if you go back, that you can't play on the air that, that Scotty kind of explains at that point he wasn't willing to give up a summer of personal time 
to go and get this repaired surgically and rehab it and go through all that work because he felt like the Bulls didn't value him enough. And Jerry Krause has basically said at this point, we're blowing the thing up. Mm-hmm. So he tried to, you know, he entertained some offers for trades for Scottie Pippen, all these things. And I think he felt like he'd been burned by the organization. So basically it became, I'm going to look out for number one. And that's where all that comes in. And then you've got the, you know, Jordan saying basically, okay, I'm out here having to carry it right now. We're trying to win a championship. And Scotty's being a little bit selfish because he's thinking of himself before he's thinking of his teammate. I think that's what's at work yeah. in that clip. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there was another clip here. And then we have time for it. It's real quick where he did say um, that he was making decisions because he had heard the owner say, we're going to blow this thing up. What made me upset was I knew it was the end of the journey. And I never saw it ending like that. Jerry Krause made everything real murky when he said, this is Phil's last year. We're dismantling this team after this season. We're basically relieved of our duties. So anyway, there's that clip you referenced right there. Neil Price on your radio. Neil, you and I were texting before we got to talk about it here, and there's just parts one and two. We got eight more to go. You watched all of it. I haven't seen it yet. But it seems to me that you, you really have two storylines, and that is the Jordan storyline. It's all about Michael Jordan. And then the Bulls, this this dynasty, this team, this makeup, the Pippins, the Krauses. It's like two different parallel storylines in this thing. Yes, I think that's accurate. And like I told you in, in our text conversation, you know, there's a lot of focus on Michael Jordan because obviously Michael Jordan is the greatest player on that team. And I think he's the greatest player that ever played the game at that level, certainly. And then you've got the dynamic of how very, there's a piece in there, Matt, that you'll find as they, as they kind of explain how Michael Jordan became this self-made guy and, and, and a self-made player. Um, as they go through that story, when he first gets to Chicago in 84, you know, he wins the rookie of the year. And then the second season, he has an injury. He basically breaks a bone in his foot and it's going to sideline him for 60 plus games of that second year. And when he finally gets back, and again, there's kind of a, he kind of went outside the, the confines, I think, of what the team would want him to do with regard to protecting their investment. Mm-hmm. And he goes back to college. He works on his degree and he works from playing one on one against other players all the way up to where he's in a five on five game again to try and accelerate the process so he can get back. And, uh, when he gets back, you've got Jerry Krause. And, and, and Jerry Reinsdorf are, are basically saying, okay, we got to protect our investment. You can play 14 minutes a night, and that's it. No, And, and, and if he goes a second over 14 minutes, they're going to fire his coach. Mm. So you start to see some early friction in year two of Jordan's career in Chicago where he clearly has ambitions about trying to win. And he, he had basically said when they brought him to Chicago, we're going to get in the play because the, the Bulls were, were mediocre at best. They were terrible right. in a lot of respects yeah. before Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so you, that dynamic, and he says, you know, we're going to change the playoffs every year. And they're making a push for the playoff in that second year, even though Jordan's missed 60-some-odd games. 
And he's trying to find a way to get them there, and they're saying you can play 14 minutes a night, and that's it. <laughs> and toward the end of the year, it's coming down to a game or two here and there of getting that eighth and final playoff spot. And finally, they're able to get over the hump. And, and, and one of the things you saw in the documentary last night is because John Paxson hits a uh, John Paxson hits a shot late, I think, against the Hawks that puts them over the top and gives them a key win that gets them into that eighth spot. And then they take the restrictions off Jordan in the playoff, and they play against the Celtics, number one seed that year, I think, in 86. And uh, he just he just has two monster games against what would have been probably the best team. Larry Bird's the best team he ever played for, that 85-86 Celtics team. Mm-hmm. And Jordan goes out there. Of course, it leads Larry Bird to say in the documentary, he said, that wasn't Michael Jordan, that was God. You know, just you know, disguised as Michael Jordan. That's mm-hmm. what it was. Yeah, you know, what I mean, because nobody could guard him. Nobody could guard him. Well, and I have that clip of those sixty-three points that he scored that year in the '86 playoffs and set a record. And you know, it's just the legend. You know, some legends peak and then they the the sizzle goes away over time. His just doesn't go away. Neil, whenever I have you on, it goes by too quickly, man. I appreciate it. Hey, I enjoyed it, and good talking to you during all this. We're going to get together again real soon. Yes, okay? sir. Let's watch the next two parts, and we'll do it again next Monday. Appreciate you. Yeah. All right, man. All right. See you. That's Neil Price. Y'all follow him on Twitter at Hail State Voice. Stick around. You're listening to The Matt Wyatt Show. Yeah, we had a weird occurrence. Now, this has happened to a lot of people, I think, over the years, but first time it's happened to us. And it's not fun when it happens. Somebody somehow, somewhere has hacked into your account information or your debit cards and gotten hold of the numbers or somehow, somehow they've gotten it. And they are spending your money and you don't know who it is and they're in some other part of the country. I mean, that's not, I mean, so it's not identity theft. We're just talking about theft. That's what it is. They've gotten your, has to be your debit card information stuff, and they are using it to buy stuff. And it happened to us. Beaver, has that ever happened to you? Identity theft? Yeah, well, yeah, you know, sort of like somebody's using your information to they are into your bank account somehow spending your money. Identity theft is not a joke, Jim. <laughs> Millions of families suffer every year. <laughs> that- luckily, luckily, I've knock on wood or whatever this yeah. is here on the counter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never had that happen where they got into my account. I have had fraudulent purchases on my credit card. Yeah. But... I've never had it happen like where they got in my bank account. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I guess that's the what I should say. I, I mean, again, it's it's all really fresh. So apparently on Thursday, and this was a debit card thing. Okay. So this wouldn't be into the bank account deal. This was a apparently 
somehow using our debit card information to buy stuff. So it happened on Thursday. I didn't find out until end of the weekend that all of our debit cards, we have two different accounts with the same bank for our family. And, and all of our debit cards were locked up. The accounts were locked up. There'd been some activity and I'd gotten a text and a phone call from the bank saying, Hey, something's not right. Fraud department. Is this you? And we're like, we'll have to look into it. The problem was I didn't realize it and get these messages and stuff until it was already after hours on Saturday where I couldn't talk to anybody. So we had to sit on it for the better part of 48 hours. You know, say the better part until I could call and get it taken care of this morning. But it would go back to last Thursday. Somebody made like seven purchases that were charged to us at Target in Houston, Texas. Seven purchases, and they were all about a hundred bucks each. And you add them up, it was a little over seven hundred dollars. <throat> it's like, boom, a hundred bucks. They bought something. Boom, ten minutes later, bought something. Boom, ten minutes later, bought something. It all add, added up to about seven hundred dollars. And it happened on the other, uh, on on both of our accounts at the same Target in Houston, Texas. Yeah, and so the bank, like they should do, immediately they're like, flagged it shut it down so that no more could go out of it. And uh, so by the time Annabeth and I realized what's going on, we check it. I think I guess it was Saturday we tried to buy something. We're like, hey, it won't go through. We're like, well, that's weird. There should be some money in there. Let's check the account, you know. So we start checking it, and yeah, it's fine. And she goes, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> she was looking at it. She said, this says Target for this amount. Oh, look at all these charges to Target in Houston, Texas. I'm like, yeah, somebody's got our stuff. And that's why they shut it down. So we had to go through the whole process of changing this and changing that and on the phone. And it was actually nice to be able to talk to somebody local with our bank here, but get new cards and cancel all the old stuff and change every password. And yeah. Not fun and a little scary. But here's the reason I'm bringing this up, Beaver. You know what they told me at the bank today, kind of before what? I got out away from there? A lady, a really nice lady goes, hey, and listen, you're not the only one who has having to deal with this after this weekend. Now, this is someone at the bank. Didn't give me any specifics. They wouldn't do that. But was basically telling me, hey, this is we this is happening a lot. And that is hackers somehow, some way. We've always heard about it. Okay. You've even heard these things of like people put these little card readers and sneak them into gas pumps. Have you heard about that? Oh yeah. And they tell you to like wiggle it <laughs> before you I just got to be, you know, you know what I mean? Um, well, we've always heard about this stuff. Well, apparently these hackers, these thieves, thieves that know how to do this kind of stuff have really ramped it up across the country. 
during this pandemic and the shelter in place and quarantine, which means what? We are all buying things online more collectively as a society than we ever have right now. Less shopping in stores, less writing checks and paying for things with cash than ever before. It's all online transactions just all over the place. Even when you're getting like food, what do you do, Beaver? You call ahead, place your order, and you do the curbside pickup. But a lot of people are paying with those, giving their card numbers over the phone so that it's paid for when they get there. They can just drop it in the window. You keep on driving. See, I had one of those not too many days before all this happened where I made a purchase locally here in my hometown. And, you know, I know them. They know me. And so I just gave them the whole card number and the expiration date and the code on the back and everything over the phone so that they run it. It's paid for. I pull up. They give me my items. I just keep on going. Well, more and more and more of that going on. Well, guess what? More and more theft going on where people are using your debit card and credit card numbers to buy their own stuff. So just beware. I I guess my advice would be, no matter who you are or where you are, my advice would be keep an eye closer than maybe you ever have before on what that debit is coming out of your bank account and where it's going out and at what time it was spent. Because it may not be you. That's all I'm saying. Okay? That's all I'm saying. Hey, I appreciate you tuning in. I'm Matt. Beaver's here. You're here. That's the most important thing. You can text me on the Country Pleasing text line. It's 885-ESPN or 885-3776. You can call me on the Divinity Equipment phone line, 995-1059. I got a text here from an unnamed texter. It says, had my business bank account hacked three times last year. Said it sucks. They stole checks out of a vendor's mailbox. Tell you, man. Yeah, see, one of mine is my business account. Got to keep an eye on it. Uh, Hey, one person said it in an interview And not so many words as the rest of us have been saying it about college football coming back this fall. Y'all know Greg McElroy, one of Beaver's favorite former players because he led Alabama, his beloved Alabama Crimson Tide, to a national championship. Greg McElroy, now an analyst on the SEC Network, he did an interview, and listen to what he's saying about the playing of college football at some point here in the near future. Right now, look, football has to be played. Like, literally, it has to be played. So they are going to play it come hell or high water. It's going to happen. It's just we're not sure exactly when it's going to happen because if it's not, college athletics will literally implode. Football programs make up and account for around 80% of the revenue of a vast majority of these schools. And television revenue is one thing, but for some of these schools in the group of five, the MAC and the, and the Mountain West and, and the American Athletic Conference, even though they're the, essentially the power six, they rely so heavily on that gate revenue 
that it would be really, really difficult for them to put forth other programs and to support other varsity sports and to provide 200 scholarships annually. You know, can I just ask a question? How did we get to a point in America where all of these major universities are fielding all of these athletics teams that are, that give out all of these scholarships yet they have no way to support any of it financially other than football how do we get to that point is anybody asking that question now the last thing i would do is get on here on the radio and and start going off and ripping to shreds the title 9 and stuff about you know, providing women's sports and on an equal level with men's sports and all that kind of stuff at university. I'm not going down that path, but why why can't we ask that question? How is it? Now, I know it's a pandemic. These are not normal circumstances. But how is it that we got to a point where we got 20, 30, 40 different sports, 200-something athletes or 200-something scholarships across all these different sports on all these campuses, and none of them can fund it in any way other than football paying for it. Does that not, I mean, am I the only one that looks at that and finally goes, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life from supposedly a bunch of smart people? Stick around. All right, let's do it. Text line. Three hump camel on the country pleasing text. You can text me as well. I hope you do. It's... A 601 number, 885-ESPN. 885-ESPN, text away. Three Hump Camel says, if the game's on the line, I want Jordan taking the last shot. If my life is on the line, I want Bird taking the last shot. Try to make sense of that, Three Hump Camel. I sure am. But... You know, it was Jordan, the aforementioned, who on this day, this day, April the 20th, 1986, scored 63 points in a playoff game against Bird and the Celtics. Ainge guarding Michael Jordan. Jordan goes up for the shot and hits it and has 61 points to tie Elgin Baylor's all-time single-game playoff record that he established against these Celtics. Jordan with eight on the clock. Jordan ties the game. Oh, boy. 63 points, and you're looking at an all-time record. Oh, boy. Michael Jordan. Uh-huh. Michael Jordan. The GOAT. Hey, um, Beaver, help me out. Define a millennial. Who is a millennial? You know, I've always had trouble defining what age group this is. Yeah, I get them mixed up too. I'm 
I'm 37, and people have called. People have said I'm a millennial, but I've had other people tell me, "Oh no, you just missed out. It's 35 and younger." Yeah. So okay. I'm not. I've never been clear. I just looked it up, millennial, and according to the dictionary online, it's a person reaching young adulthood in the early 21st century. So, in other words, it's somebody who was like a a kid of the what eighties, nineties, and young adult in the early two thousands. Is that what they're saying? Because if that's the case, it's sort of me. But I mean, I was born in in the late seventies. Millennials, also known as Generation Y, are the demographic following Generation X, preceding Generation Z. Duh, we know the alphabet. Researchers or popular uh, and popular media use the early 1980s as a starting as starting birth years, the mid 90s to early 2000s as ending birth years. With 81 to 96, a widely accepted defining range for the generation. Okay, so I just wanted to clarify that if that's the accepted definition of who the millennials were, then then Denzel is correct on the country-pleasing text line. He is correct when he says, Matt, that's Generation Z kids that are saying all that stuff to you. Millennials saw Jordan play. We know he's the greatest. All right? You got it. I'm Generation X. It's these Generation Zers that don't know their butt from a hole in the ground. Can I say that on the radio? Because <laughs> I just did. Bama in Madison says, we are all thinking of getting the virus and what not to do in order to avoid getting it. We are thinking about the economy in some form or fashion, whether it's a job loss, money for food, etc. I'd like, ask, I'd like to ask everyone to call friends that you haven't spoken to in a while and chat. Depression is real, and several people are tackling all the common problems alone. Make sure everyone you know knows that they aren't alone. This has bothered me for a few days since speaking with an elderly man at Kroger on Saturday from a distance, of course. So yeah, Bama in Madison, absolutely, and that is a great text. You know, and, and you hate it that for us as a human race and as people a lot of times, and we're well-intentioned, but sometimes it takes a desperate situation for us to really get some perspective. And yes, if it takes this, understand that we might be well-served to reach out to people we hadn't talked to in a while. Just check on everybody. Stay in touch. Communicate. That's a really good point. Thank you. Miko on the country, please, in text 885-ESPN says, uh, Matt, I made the last dance part of my son's end-of-the-year school project. His promotion depends on his ability to, comp- uh, to comprise a six-page paper about the docuseries. <laughs> I hear you, Mr. Miko, Teacher Miko, whatever it takes, man. Whatever it takes. Norman says, Matt, tell us again the coffee blends you like from High Point Roasters. See ya, Norman. High Point Roasters in New Albany, Mississippi. Dan Skinner, Dan the Coffee Man, locally roasted, and I've seen their operation. It is uh, really, really impressive, and it's the real deal, okay? And I like them all. Right now, I'm going through a bag of the um, Mocha Java and also a bag of the Campfire Blend. I really like both of those. 
Uh, but maybe right at the top of the list. Now it's it's a little a tad bit more expensive, but the Hawaiian kind is called the Kona. That and a blend called Viennese. Uh, any of those I really highly recommend. The Bicentennial blend is really, really popular also. And I think um, for most coffee drinkers, it's right, it'd be right up your alley. Ghost Pepper. Here's what's up with Beaver, he says. He says, Beaver wears Lululemon tights for women. I heard him say it during the gridiron. Well, I can't remember if he said he wore them or not, but he was talking about them. <laughs> <laughs> that's how bogus rumors get started see you don't know if you heard it so you're just going to say it anyway in regards to beaver getting a new television bulldog west on the country pleasing text line says i've been told that it's better to just replace these new tvs than to even try to repair them cheap parts quality with a much bigger price no doubt i mean you can go out and beaver i mean am i in a ballpark you can go out and get like a 40-something inch smart TV for like 200 bucks. Yeah. Sure can. I mean, next to nothing. And I love it. Bully Bill on the Country Pleasing Text says it makes perfect sense. Jordan didn't care about anything but winning games and totally get what he's called. That's all he cared about. He said it. Here's the quote. My innate personality is to win at all costs. If I have to do it myself, I'm going to do it. Every time I step on that basketball court, my focus is to win a game. It drives me insane when I can't. As you get older, you look back and you understand how you became the person you are. I don't think I would be here without the lessons that I learned at a very young age. That competitiveness within me started when I was a kid. How about that? He didn't have to say it. That's the thing about it. Chris is pointing it out here on the uh, Country Pleasing Text. 81 to 96, if you're born in that range, you're a millennial. And and that's it. So they saw it. They know if you saw him play, watch those teams, he does not have to say it. You get it. His competitiveness was on a different level. He's the only pro athlete I can ever remember where everybody who witnessed it walked away saying, that guy is different. He just wills them to wins. Don't know how. It's incredible. Three Hump Camel says, by the way, Bird got the best of Jordan a whole lot more than that one 63-point game. I'm not saying Bird is the greatest player of all time, but do your homework. Well, I understand that Larry Bird was one of the best players of all time. Nobody said otherwise. I'm just saying, you said it was a Pat Riley quote. He said it. If the game's on the line, you want Jordan taking the shot. If your life is on the line, you want Bird taking the last shot. Well, I mean, what's the difference? <laughs> Jordan thought his life was on the line at the end of the game. He approached it that way. What's the difference? What do you mean, do my homework? On what? <laughs> Jordan's the greatest player of all time. The greatest scorer of all time, the greatest winner of all time, the greatest clutch shooter of all time, the greatest champion of all time, the greatest competitor of all time. Why do I want anybody else taking the other shot if my the final shot if my life is on the line? I don't that's all I said is I don't quite understand where that's coming from. And I get it. I know what Larry Bird was. And that brings me back to my original point. 
Don't let any of these. Now, let me pref, let me change it now. These Generation Zers look you in the eye and spew this nonsense about today's NBA and how good it is and how competitive it is and all that kind of stuff. They don't have a clue. Because what you have, listen, right now, this very minute, April the 20th, 2020, and I know that we're in the middle of this pandemic, but you get the point. Right now, name the big stars in the NBA that are recognizable worldwide. Not nationwide, worldwide. Name them. You got one name. One. Period. You know how many you had in 92 and 93 and 86 and 89 for a decade or more? You know how many you had that were stars recognizable worldwide? How many? Eight, nine, ten? And oh, by the way, they played for the same team their whole careers and the playoffs were so dadgum physical. It was like watching a football game. What they have now pales in comparison to what we had in the 80s, 90s in the NBA. And that's why for that generation, it is hard to be a big NBA fan now. It's powder puff. It's not good.